What an amazing video. Do get behind IJM with every fibre of your being. Um, we're going to read from God's Word. So do you find a Bible, whether a paper one uh, or a, a digital one on your phone? <clears throat> and turn to John chapter 20, uh, and we're going to read verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After this, he said, sorry, after, this, he, after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. I wonder if there's anyone here who has ever sent someone out to do something for them. Or maybe you've been sent by someone else on a bit of a mission. Maybe you've been sent on an errand for work or sent out uh, to carry out a task uh, for someone. Depending on the scale of the task, it can be a pretty nerve-wracking thing for both the sender and the sendee, if that is a word. I think probably not, but never mind. Um, for the sender, the nervousness may be that you've entrusted something precious to the one that you've sent, whether a message or something that needs to be delivered. Or maybe you wonder about your message being lost in translation. Will the message get through or will it be Chinese whispers and end up as something totally different at the other end? For the sendee, the nervousness is more about the sense of responsibility, that you've been you become the custodian of the object or the message. You have to protect that thing that you've been entrusted with. You know, Phoebe, my eldest daughter, is about 11 now, and she's at that kind of age where you're starting to try and release them into independence more. And so we're starting to send her out on little errands to you know, go to the shops and get some milk or, or something like that. But there's a nervousness about letting go of your child uh, to, to a place where you can't see them anymore. You've got no direct ability to keep them safe. And I'm sure there's been times as well where she... Uh, as she started going out, that she felt nervous about, oh, will I, will I get it in the right post box? Or will I, you know, will I pick up the right milk with the right color lid? Um, and so these, these three next Sundays, we're going to be taking a look at what it means to live the spirit-filled life. But today I'm going to be talking about what it means to be sent with the spirit. Now, this scripture from the book of John is perhaps the closest we get in John's gospel to the account of the Great Commission, which otherwise we see in Matthew 28. It's Jesus' parting shot uh, to his followers, sending them out into the world and instructing them how to live out the mission of God, how to be witnesses in the world. And these verses in particular 
verses 21 through to 23 give us some real insight about what it means to live lives of witness. And so we're going to stay close to the text this morning and kind of really chew over it. In these verses, there appear to be four active roles, I would say, that Jesus calls all Christians to inhabit, that when lived out, they help us to bear witness effectively to Jesus. You should be able to see that on the screen or on your TV. <laughs> and these, these roles I've called uh, beneficiaries of peace, imitators of Christ, carriers of the Spirit, and messengers of good news. Let's, let's look at this in more detail. So first, beneficiaries. When Jesus enters the room where his disciples are hiding out, the very first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. He then shows them the wounds in his hands and his feet and in his side, evidence of what he'd endured. And then once more, he declares peace be with you again. And the word in the text here is this word irene, this Greek word, which is the closest Greek equivalent we have to the Hebrew word shalom, which you may have heard of before. And one, uh, one theologian describes this word shalom as a word which gathers up all the blessings of the kingdom of God. This word proclaimed over Jesus' followers. The word shalom is also sometimes translated in Greek translations of the Old Testament as salvation. It therefore makes perfect sense that the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he greets his disciples in this room, with, he uses this rich, deep word, which carries a sense of both deep peace and blessing and a proclamation of salvation based on the work that he'd done on the cross. In Colossians 1, verses 19 to 20, it unpacks this piece a little bit more. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished, mark the end, the end point and the, the wrapping up of the old covenant. It's this, these words here, peace be with you, that are an announcement that a new covenant has come. A covenant where God has inaugurated a peace treaty with those who love him. Practically, what this means for us is that our lives of Christian witness must stand on the firm knowledge that God is at peace with us, that he's made peace with us, that he loves us. We have to be beneficiaries of this peace. We have to receive that salvation in order that it might flow from us and ripple out into the world. We can't witness to the thing that we haven't received ourselves. Secondly, imitators. In verse 21, Jesus declares that he is sending his disciples out into the world, but he's very deliberate. 
in stating how they should be sent. It's not just being sent in any old way. He says that he is sending them out as the Father has sent him. And the little word as here is critically important. It means in the same manner as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What did Jesus mean by this? Well, obviously, the Father sends the Son from heaven to earth, and that's not the way that we're being sent. It's not a kind of cosmographical um, argument, as it were. What he's trying to get across to his disciples here is the manner of the sending, and that that relates to a shared purpose. The similarity here is missional. There is an inherent similarity between the sending of the Son by the Father and our sending into the world by the Son. In this context, part one of the mission of God is the sending by the Father of the Son to usher in this age of peace that we've just been talking about through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And part two is that the church is sent by the Son to direct people back to Jesus. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, I'm always on a mission. This is always my purpose, but now you're joining in with me. You're joining in with the Missio Dei, with the mission of God. Come along with me. It's one mission of God, two distinct chapters. And tied up with this mission is the notion of authority and obedience. We can't get away from it in this scripture. The authority of the sender and the obedience of the one who is sent is critical for this to work. And just as the father had complete authority in sending the son, so too the son has complete uh, obedience in going where he's been sent. The relationship between the father and the son, this authority and obedience relationship, should be something that is mimicked between, in our relationship between Jesus and the church. If Jesus says to us, jump, our response has to be, Lord, how high? That has to be the response. It is that relationship, authority and obedience. Yeah, to some people, this language might sound slightly oppressive, but actually I think it's the opposite, and I'll tell you why. There's a brilliant quote which is going to go up on the screen, hopefully, from Bruce Milne. He says this, Here is the paradox of Christian ministry. We find freedom insofar as we permit his enslavement of us. We bring life to others to the degree to which we give up our own. We have authority and power in the measure to which we are willing to become helpless. This is the topsy-turvy inverted kingdom of heaven, yeah? It's just how it works. We don't get authority by lording it over the people. We're not strong by being strong. We are strong and we find strength in weakness. How do we courageously go in mission to a broken world? As we've just seen in that video, how do we go about doing that? We go as imitators of Christ, which means that we have to go as slaves to Christ. We go as slaves to Jesus. We go giving up our lives. We go knowing that we are helpless. Only then do we find freedom 
bringing life to others with power and authority. The third role that we're called to inhabit is as carriers of the Spirit. There's been a huge amount of debate surrounding the words of Jesus in verse 22, which most translations render, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And the controversy comes because it seems clear that the Holy Spirit fills the disciples at Pentecost, which is after the ascension. And you can read about that in Acts 2. So what's going on here? If the disciples were filled at Pentecost, what is this pronouncement of Jesus? What's going on here? Well, there are various theories. So uh, John Calvin, as an example, would say that this is a kind of sprinkling of the Spirit. Just have a little bit now and a little bit later kind of thing. It's quite odd, really. I'm not sure I buy that. Um, I personally think here Jesus is in prophet and teacher mode that there's something about his uh, pronouncement, his breathing and saying uh, about the Spirit coming that is, is prophetic, it's pointing to something that will come. And it's also didactic, he's teaching them about the nature of the Spirit. What's the Spirit like? He's like the breath of God. Uh, It's interesting to note as well that in the Greek, after the word uh, breathed, the words on them actually aren't in the text. We've kind of added that in to make our English neater. It simply says, he breathed, then receive the Spirit. So it has less of a sense of pouring out of the Spirit and more of a sense of him saying, look at, look at what's to come. This is what he's going to be like. It's going to be the breath of God that joins you. The significant part in all this, though, is that what Jesus is saying is you are not alone. You're not alone in mission. You're not alone in your witness. Yeah. And he he says the same to us today, doesn't he? He says that he is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. The spirit lives in us. We are the new temple of God. Wherever you go, friends... The Spirit of God goes with you. And I just find that blows my mind. Do you do you not do you do you kind of sometimes forget these massive truths of the Christian faith and then you just suddenly remember that? It's like, I'm just gonna go and, you know, choose some barbecue food in Lidl. Uh, And God is with me. The very presence of God is with me wherever I go. Go to the supermarket, God's there. Because you're there, and because I'm there, no less. Now, God is omnipresent. We know that. He's everywhere. But actually, there is a specific incarnational inhabiting that in us, God is there in a tangible, in-flesh manner. I wonder what would happen if we could all really kind of grab hold of this truth, this reality, that we would have faith that just through our presence, the Spirit of God being with us will be moving powerfully where we are. You know, in 2 Corinthians 3.17, it says, now the Lord is Spirit. You'll probably know this. The Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, yeah? Isn't Isn't that mad to think where we go just by being there? God is, and he can bring about freedom. Amazing stuff. Friends, we can be really confident 
not confident in ourselves and our own ability, our own presence, but we can be confident in God's word that he says, where you go, I am there. Full stop. Fact. We are carriers of the very presence of God and of his spirit. Fourthly and finally, Jesus calls us to be messengers. There's a point where, you know, it's good to be present. It's good to be imitators of Christ. We have to do good things and show people what Christ looks like, which is why when there's things like slavery and oppression in the world, we have to act and we have to do something. That is imitating Christ. It is doing what Christ would do. But that's not good enough on its own. We need to preach. We need to attribute that goodness to somebody so it's not from us. We need to proclaim who Jesus is. And this is what verse 23 is about, where we have this strange phrase that Jesus says to his disciples. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. It sounds like we're all this kind of, you know, we can kind of just pronounce that over people and and forgive people's sins. Now, whenever we get to a scripture that appears complicated or like it's saying something a bit odd, the, the kind of rules of exegesis, which is extracting meaning from text, is that we have to test scripture against scripture. So we test the unclear against the clear. And um, there are three other occasions in the New Testament that are clear. There's some other slightly less clear ones that are pretty obviously saying God alone can forgive sins. It's God only who does it. And so there is pretty broad agreement here that what Jesus is actually communicating is simply the natural result of the preaching of the gospel going out. What happens when we proclaim who Jesus is? There's something about the forgiveness of sins and the non-forgiveness of sins. It's one of those Jesus paradoxes again here. He is both the most uniting force, I would argue, that the world has ever seen, and also probably the most divisive. Jesus splits opinion. You know, on the one hand, we heard earlier on that Jesus shows up to his disciples, and what's the first thing he says to them? He proclaims peace, doesn't he? He says, peace be with you. And yet in Matthew 10, he says this, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is Jesus talking in classic hyperbole. Okay, he doesn't mean that he's actually coming specifically to cause a fight. He's not, he's not saying, I, I want everybody to start picking fights in their households. That is categorically not what is going on here. It's just what happens when people are confronted with who Jesus is. When we try and engage deeply with who is Jesus and what's he come to do, it's divisive. We can be in one camp or the other. We can choose Jesus or we can reject him. There is no fence It's just two sides. Sounds a bit adversarial, but you know what I mean. There's two choices, I should say. The preaching of the gospel does bring about great unity. 
I just want to say that explicitly. It does bring about great unity. But that's primarily for those who put their trust in and follow Jesus. Jesus unites the church. We find unity as we gather around Christ. But not everyone will gather around Christ. Some people will reject him, and Jesus allows that. There's no coercion, there's no manipulation in Christ. He simply says, come and follow me. It's an open invitation, a warm invitation that some will reject. And they'll reject him because of who he said he was, God in flesh. You can't go around proclaiming that you're Yahweh, that you're the creator of the universe without some people taking issue with that. It's why he was crucified. We've got to expect people to accept him and to reject him. He provokes reaction. Jesus is the very definition of spiritual marmite, I would argue. You love him or you hate him. And C.S. Lewis knew this all too well. When in a moment of, I would argue, apologetic genius, he writes this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. There is no sitting on the fence. Guys, this is the message that we are called to share It is a message that is a beautiful message. It's a message of forgiveness and hope, beauty, truth, the way to life. It really is. But it is also divisive. We've got to expect that some people will reject that message. Okay, coming into land. Let's take a deep breath as I sum up. As witnesses sent by Jesus, which is all which is all of us. You know, there are, there are evangelists who may have a specific calling, but we are all called to be witnesses, all of us, without exception. You know, you may feel in that role a bit like my Phoebe, who's just been entrusted with a few quid to go out to Little and, oh man, I've got to go out and I've not done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. I've got to, <laughs> got to go get the right milk. You might feel that you've been given something really precious to carry and you're nervous about that, you're, you're worried maybe about getting it wrong. I guess my parting shot would be, have no fear. The one who sends you really does know what he's doing. So keep it simple. Dwell on Jesus' peace that he extends to you today. Imitate Jesus the best that you possibly can, knowing you'll make mistakes, and that's fine. Pass on the beautiful, divisive, uniting good news and trust that you carry the Spirit of God wherever you go. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, there is just so much need in the world. 